Hello and welcome to the Global Wire Conversation. I'm your host, Ralph Schallammer, and today we are talking to Professor Timothy Grossclose from the George Mason University, where he holds the Adam Smith Chair at the Mercatus Center. Dr. Grossclose has worked extensively on questions of economics and congressional politics, and his main focus has been on bias in the media. We'll be talking about his last book on the topic, Left Turn, and other issues related to media bias. So what what I would like like to start with, because I think that's that's one of the most interesting part for our listeners, is that when you start working on the question of media bias, you actually come from a quantitative direction. So it's it's less a theoretical lamentation of media bias, but you actually try to approach this topic via quantitative met- methods. Could you explain a little bit how you went about that? Uh, sure. Uh, I mean, it's kind of what I do. That's kind of, uh, if you look at um, my uh, career since uh, after I graduated uh, PhD, my PhD program in 1992, uh, I'd say most of the studies that I've done have been some sort of quantitative analysis of politics. And so I thought, hey, you know, here's uh, uh, the question. Are the media really biased? Uh, why not approach it with some of the tools that I've used in the past? And uh, my whole goal was to say, um, let's get a number. Uh, can we say, here's how left-wing or right-wing this news outlet is, the New York Times say. Here's how uh, left-wing or right-wing Fox News and Special Report is. And uh, so uh, took a long time. Finally uh, got it out. It started out with a... Uh, uh, publication in a peer-reviewed journal, the Quarterly Journal of Economics, and then um, uh, after that, I decided to extend it uh, into a book. And that, and that was Left Turn. Yeah, and that's Left that, Turn. That's right. That's and, right. And, and what your research, I think the, the journal it was published in was the Quarterly Journal of Economics, so a, a really kind of econometrics, um, quantitative uh, journal dealing mostly with questions about economics so it's as i said it's it's not it was not political theory it was not it was really in the area of econometrics so the real goal of what you tried to do with your development of the political quotient was kind of to say is there a way to as objective objectively as possible measure political bias and kind of what were the findings that came out of it and and, and the conclusions that you drew Okay, uh, so um, uh, we started off. I had a co-author, by the way, Jeff Milo. He's now mm-hmm. a professor at the University of Missouri. Uh, we restricted it to twenty news outlets. That's how we started, and uh, things like New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Time, Newsweek, uh, the three network evening news shows, and one uh, Fox show, and. Uh, one thing we found is uh, of the 20, all of those that would be called uh, mainstream news outlets, which by that I mean everything but Fox and the Washington Times, both of those I think most people would say are conservative news outlets. But all the mainstream news outlets we found uh, were biased to the left of center. So by our scale, uh, 50 would have been perfectly centrist and all of them, except for the Fox and Washington Times, uh, had a score above 50. And on this on this scale, uh, 100 is very liberal. The, the, the higher you are, the more liberal you are. So we found all of them uh, lean to the left. Now, one thing we found was that they, they didn't lean that much to the left. So all of our numbers were things that we could compare to members of Congress. And so... Uh, on this scale, uh, 
the average Democrat in Congress had a, something like an 85 on this scale. So it would mean that uh, on this scale, if you took the average speech of a typical Democrat in Congress, on our scale, mine Milo scale, uh, that person would get an 85. That speech would get an 85. Now, uh, just about all of our media outlets were more centrist than that 85. So we found all the mainstream media pretty much had a score to the left of centrist, uh, but were more moderate than the average Democrat in Congress. Uh, meanwhile, the two uh, conservative news outlets we looked at, Fox News Special Report and Washington Times, both had a score to the right of 50. Uh, but again, uh, those two uh, were not that far right. They weren't as near, nearly as conservative as the average speech by a Republican, for instance. And uh, at least Fox News Special Report was much closer, although it was right, most of the network news shows, for instance, were to the left. We found that Fox News Special Report was actually closer to the center than the average uh, of the network news shows. I think the book Left Turn was published in, in 2012. I think that's right, yeah. So do you think if you if you would repeat the study today that, uh, that the outcomes would, would differ significantly? Do you think that, that the bias has sharpened? Over the last couple yeah, of years, I, I think so. I mean, uh, there was an article in the uh, New York Times, I think, during the campaign, where some journalist of the New York Times said something like, "Yeah, it's our duty to be biased. You know, we know we can't be fair and objective with with Donald Trump. This person is awful, and we've got to call him out, and we've got to say how bad he is. We can't pretend we're moderate anymore." And so, when I did my book. If you ask the, the average journalist, he or she might admit, so yeah, my views are to the left, but when I write, I, for all intents and purposes, act like a moderate, that you should not be able to distinguish me from a moderate. So once Trump came along, though, I think the, the average journalist would admit, say, no, I do not like write like a moderate. In fact, I think it's immoral for me to, act, to write like a moderate. I need... I need to say it like I believe, like my opinion say about Donald Trump. So things like CNN, for instance, uh, when I did my original study, uh, the one news show we looked at at CNN was was very close to perfectly centrist. And I don't think that would be true at all. Now, I still watch CNN from time to time. Wolf Blitzer, I think, has kind of stayed cl close to the center. But every other show on CNN is just... It, nakedly to the left that uh, make they make no bones about it and so um uh, i think the same might be true of new york times uh washington post lots of the other uh print news outlets so i, I think they would be more left uh than i found in in 2012. But when you started, when your book was, was published and also the, the article in the Quality Journal of Economics around 2010 and 2013 was also a time when I, when I was in my PhD program for political science. And like most political science departments, our department slighted a little bit to, to the left or was, was more left of center. But when one brought up the idea of, of that there would be a, a liberal media bias, kind of the argument was, well, how do you prove it? How do you show it? 
And uh, even this week, with the, the recent kind of rehashing of the of the whole uh, Justice Kavanaugh story, it seems that the the the, the ability to hide it, or, or, or as you said, right, kind of at least the appearance of moderation was something to be maintained. But it seems that this is completely gone. Do you think that this can at some point backfire and have the opposite effect? Kind of that people might like to be nudged or like or accept to be nudged in a certain direction, but not to kind of be so blatantly driven in, into a certain direction. You think it's going to backfire against the media? You mean? Correct. Uh, yeah, it could be. You're right. This uh, is a little bit different world than 2012. All the blogs and Twitter, and so you know, as I wrote um, in Left Turn, I, I said, "Look, I've been doing you know countless research on, on media bias, and just about every time I've found when I, I think something's biased, it's not been a lot. It's not been the journalist is lying to us. It's been the, lies, the, the journalist is failing to present some important facts to us. And I thought that Kavanaugh story that came out last week was just a beautiful example of that. There was this key fact that the 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 supposed victim in this Kavanaugh story was not willing to talk to reporters and she didn't remember the so-called incident. Now that New York Times piece did not even mention that fact. And you think like how could they not mention that fact? How could the New York Times writers not not do that? Because anyone, all it takes is someone to read the book of that that book that had come out last week and, and anyone could discover that. In the past, when we didn't have Twitter, Facebook, uh, all these blogs, that might have been kept kept hidden. In fact, something like this happened to uh, Brian Williams, uh, the the uh, news anchor at NBC, when he said that he was in that um, firefight in in Iraq, and all it took was one soldier, and I happen to know, I paid attention to these deals. That soldier went to a high school called Lake Hamilton High School in Hot Springs, Arkansas. The reason I remember that, because that school was the rival high school of my my high school. So uh, I was quarterback of the team that lost to that school. Lake Hans I remember Lake Hamilton. And that, it was a sergeant in, in, in Iraq, and he just wrote on Facebook to Brian Williams, sorry, dude, didn't happen that way. So this, you know, normal citizen is able to get his message out through Facebook. That, it, 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 um, to a small extent, that was true in 2012, but not like it is now. So there's certain things if journalists leave out some message or if they lie about some message, they're going to get caught. Or there's a, a much higher chance of that than, than was true, um, say, seven years ago. But do you think that, that for example, that the example you just mentioned, it's it's like, you know, it's it's a journalist kind of trying to get a little bit of frontline credentials that he doesn't have a little bit. What you also see in the in the current campaign with Joe Biden, right? Kind of we, we sort of same with Hillary Clinton and also on the Republican side, right? Where politicians kind of they land in Bosnia, in Iraq, and all of a sudden the story is how they were engaged in a firefight and how they kind of were on the brink of, uh, of, of the greatest possible danger. I think people say, well, this is kind of you know, how you exaggerate the story in order to to leave a deeper impression. But uh, the New York Times example we, we just talked about, that seems to kind of to to omit the central part, as you as you pointed out, is you you claim that a person did something, but the supposed victim doesn't remember it. And that is not even reported. Right. That's me saying 
Tim grows clothes, you know, robbed the store yesterday. And, and I would not mention in the story that the store owner said, uh, I don't remember yeah. you know, him, him even entering the store. So there is, you know, a little grandstanding, a little exaggeration. I guess that's something where people might have some acceptance or understanding because it's something we probably also do in our daily lives if we want to make a, a convey a, a, a greater impression or, or make ourselves larger than we are. But if you kind of really accuse somebody of something horrible and you leave out the, the most important detail, which is that the victim itself has no memory. I wonder if at some point people say, well, if they leave such a crucial element out, can I trust anything else they report? So it's, it's, it's one thing to say the opinion authors, right, they write their opinion and that might be left to center. But if the news pieces go in this direction, that's what I meant with backlash. Do you think this is going to gonna come at a price at some point? Yeah, I think so. In fact, I think um, what happens in the next Republican president when um, when the news media starts attacking the next Republican president like they did Trump, any vo average voter is going to say, oh, well, now we know that the person's Republican. That's why they're doing that. And uh, all of a sudden, you're not as credible when, when that happens. So, yeah, I think that... Um, people are going to slowly start um, seeing the bias in, in uh, mainstream news outlets and all of a sudden start thinking with a new lens, like, oh, that person's liberal. And, and I don't think that was as true in, in 2012. I think there were much more people who were saying, no, New York Times, you know, that that's the most respected news outlet. They're playing it straight down the middle. And um, I think what they're doing with Trump, I don't think they – realize the long-term implications of this. People are, are not going to trust the media as much uh, in the future as I think they did uh, seven years ago. I mean, that's right. That's one argument that she, she's, of course, a, a firebrand in her own respect, but that's an argument that Ann Coulter made in her most recent book. She says, well, one thing that probably will definitely leave uh, or say with us after after Trump is the, the implosion of, of the main media outlets. Yeah. You know, in fact, I think we're already kind of seeing this. And in fact, I, I, I may even need to update my book. Uh, the last part of my book, I talk about the effect of the news media. And I found, I think what most people would say that it, it was surprisingly larger than I think most people would have expected. You know, it, was, it was larger than I expected, uh, at least. Um, here's what's going on, though. If, if you watch CNN, MSNBC, they treat Trump as as if he is at least as bad as Nixon and sometimes even as bad as Hitler. I mean, some of these stories are just like, you know, not only is he bad, he's this bad. Despite that, Trump's approval rating is consistently above 40, definitely like always above 35. Now, if you really believed MSNBC and CNN – that he was as bad as Hitler, or at least worse than Nixon, you would not have an approval rating that high. Moderate voters would say, no, no, no. I the approval rating should be something you know, around 10% or so. Somehow, moderate voters at least, and conservative voters too, are discounting those reports. They are not being affected by those reports as I think they would have been 20 years ago. So somehow the effect of the bias is much less than I think I reported in my book and much less than the effect would have been uh, 20 years ago.
do you think it would be fair to to say that even the election of, of Donald Trump to, to the presidency itself is a little bit an effect, not of media bias, but kind of the, the extraordinary amount of attention they gave to him, especially also during the primaries, that kind of the idea was, well, this is great for ratings and he's never yeah. going to make it anyways. And then all of a sudden, kind of they yeah. couldn't get the genie back into the bottle. Yeah, especially during the Republican primaries. Um, I can't think of the examples, but it seems like if I was a consultant to someone running for the uh, for president in the Republican primary, I would say whatever you do in those debates, just attack the media. So, I mean, there used to be a bumper sticker out that sort of annoy the annoy the media, vote Bush or vote Republican. Um, uh, so. It, and the amazing thing is uh, during the Republican primary, Trump spent very little money. Uh, like, I'm not sure. He, 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 I mean, for all intents and purposes, it was, it was nothing compared to what like George, uh, Jeb Bush was spending. Yet he would get all this free attention from the media, especially during the Republican primary. So, so I think you're right. Somehow, the, I think the media really helped Trump, at least during the Republican primary, through this uh, this free advertisement, through all the coverage they were giving him. Do you think that there's an ongoing debate also about the polarization in, in the United States in general between between different parts of the country, that the, the media is kind of a result of this, a symptom, or do you think at this point that they're also a driving force behind it? Um, yeah, I think they are a driving force uh, behind it. Um, and, you know, I've been meaning to do this. I wanted to look up the, the extent to which rural states vote different from very urban states. And I, I haven't looked up the numbers yet, but I, but I think it, it, my gut tells me it is much more than it, things were 50 years ago. Uh, 50 years ago, you, you know, L.A. County, you know, would, could almost vote Republican. There's no way that could happen. That I don't think there's any metro area with at least three million people in it where the, the main county can even come close to voting Republican. So, so it's, it's something that's very different from uh, 50 years ago. And is the media a, a driving force? You, you know, it's very hard to say. I, my gut tells me that it is. But a possibility is just that it, the causation could be going the other way. It's just that urban areas I think no one has really given as much attention to this as much as it deserves. I think that's one of the big phenomena of the last decade or two is just how much different urban areas are becoming from from rural areas. Um, so urban areas are much more liberal than the rural areas. Now, all the journalists tend to live in the urban areas. So if you're in an urban area, I think it could be that the urban area is causing the journalists to become more liberal the causation could be going the other way too but i think there's a big effect could that way and it would be it's very hard in in um social science we call this an endogeneity problem and when that happens it means there's it's going to be very hard to detect which way the effect is uh, um so it's going to be very hard to measure that um my hunch is the effect is going both ways uh but i must say i think that um there's got to be a, a significant effect the other way, that the urbanization is causing the journalists to become more liberal.
But that's good. So as you say, right, it might be a little bit of both kind of that the, the effect works in, in both direction. But it's it's the, the openness that I think has been something that has been surprising. Also, the one I think it was the the, the town hall they did at the, at the New York Times a couple of weeks ago, where then the transcript was leaked. I think it was leaked to Vox.com or another a media outlet were pretty much it was openly said. Yeah, so, so the, the, the Russia story kind of we, we reported so much on it took so much. Uh, space we're gonna we're gonna have to re to rearrange the newsroom and now focus more on the on the narrative of of the president uh being a racist and it's kind of it's 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 at least within these news outlets that is openly said right i think there was for a certain time there was an agreement but that kind of was unspoken but now as you as you also alluded to now it's it's said openly i mean it's thanks to the internet there are outlets if something like this is transcribed or if people record it they will find someone to publish it which makes it even more surprising that it is said openly because at some point these things always seem to to come up and thereby damage the credibility with certain people for good reasons even further yeah i think that's right yeah i think um yeah what they said at, at that meeting it was almost like uh yeah we're, we're we all agree that we didn't get trump you know we're out to get him it, it didn't work with the media here's a new way we'll, we'll go out to get him but we all agree in this room that we are gonna get him we're gonna that's our that's our goal is to try to get him and i actually wrote a a tweet about that if you read that transcript try to look and try to see if there's any journalist named or unnamed at that meeting whom you would say oh i bet that's a republican there's no one at that meeting who, who you would say that it's very clear everyone there uh, leans left in their politics everyone who spoke up at least and that's that's a surprise right it's, it's gonna that this is this is it, it has become an an ideological bubble and and that's um, and that's probably more than it has been as you already said also yeah. much more than it has been in the past and it, yeah. it, it's really worrisome i'm sorry because it, it also this has also effects kind of in a transatlantic fashion. For example, if you look at it, how is it that whether it was during the times of Obama or, or now with President Trump, that if you kind of look at it, what Europeans think about Obama, what Europeans think about Trump, Obama was much more popular in the Europe than he was uh, in, in the United States. And Trump is much less popular in Europe as he's in the United States, because those Europeans who kind of want to inform them themselves about the United States, they read the Washington Post, they read the New York Times. So I think it's almost, it, it, Europe is almost like case a little bit where you could see where opinion might stand if only these sources would be available so i think there's often it's not that europeans are more sophisticated it's just they got this this filtered message and i think it shows you a little bit the effect uh, uh, uh that's an interesting argument actually i haven't i haven't heard that or thought of it before i've always got it is true that outside the u.s just about any country you look at will vote something like 80-20. If, if, if you just ask them, what are your preferences for the presidential candidate? So Obama versus uh, uh, Dole. So, oh, wait, wait, wait. Um, Obama versus uh, uh, McCain. Mm -hmm. uh, so in the U.S., it was you know something like you know, 51-49, uh, uh, Obama just barely won. But if you look at surveys outside the U.S., it's some, it's usually like 80-20. Exactly. Yeah, and the, like, so like the, the most liberal state in the United States, you're not counting Washington, D.C., would be something like Vermont. And even Vermont, it was only like 75-25, maybe, maybe only 70-30. 
So outside the U.S., countries are even more liberal by this measure than the most liberal state in the U.S. So I've always assumed that it was just something exogenous, that there was something about the United States, you know, something, the tradition from the Wild West days or something, the laissez-faire attitude and the, the you know the, the, the uh, friendliness the free market that's been in the united states has attracted more conservative people i've always assumed that was the case and that's why united states is more conservative than most other countries uh but you raise a good point maybe it's just that uh they don't live here the other the europeans and other people from america don't live here they don't get to see the facts that the media don't report and that's an interesting theory uh, i'd love to see someone try to test that somehow yeah, because it came up especially i mean this is why the trump presidency at least from a social scientific view is 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 a, is a, a very interesting experiment because it's much clearer to, in europe you don't have access to the washington you would have access but many people don't know what the washington times is and and, and fox is of course has has a reputation of being this vast right-wing organ so so people mostly if at all at airports have cnn and, and if they look up online sources it's the washington post the new york times so it, it and you can even see it in in opinion pieces about the united states in europe right when for example last couple of weeks when major german newspapers say so the new york times columnist michelle goldberg right wrote this and this for somebody who's familiar with your work and and has has kind of observed uh, the development of the media in the United States, you know that certain columnists have a very clear left-wing bias, which is fine, right? They're opinion writers. But in European newspapers, it's kind of presented as, and this journalist who is kind of, has this, this clear, unbiased, objective opinion, writes this about Trump, therefore it must be true. And Europeans say, well, if the New York Times write it, writes it, it must be true. Something that probably people thought also in the United States, uh, you know, a couple of decades ago. Not only that, the other thing is that people outside the U.S. don't have access to the gossip that that, that we we have. So you know, there's certain things you know we learn. So you know, I may be a little different because I live near Washington D.C. Every once in a while, you hear little rumors about you know what's going on. Um, but here's maybe even a better example. Uh, when I taught at UCLA. Um, I was on the admissions committee, and I ended up. That was my second book. I wrote about the how UCLA was cheating on admissions, how they were giving UCLA uh, admissions officials were giving uh, affirmative action based on race. As, as most specifically, uh, they were helping out black students, giving them a leg up when that was illegal. Um, now, if you had read just the media outlets. A portrayal of this, you know, especially like the LA Times, they rarely would say it outright, but but just about every article, there, there was some sort of hint or some sort of insinuation that the admissions people at UCLA were biased against black people, that they were discriminating against black, and that's why there were fewer black students admitted than were proportionate compared to the, the number of people who um, applied for admission. Um, now, if you were at UCLA, though, and especially if you were on like a committee like I was, I was on the faculty oversight committee for admissions, you'd meet, you'd meet these admissions people and you'd be in these meetings and almost every meeting, the, the main topic of conversation was what can we do to increase our numbers of, of black students? So like not only were we not biased against black students, we were doing all we could to try to be biased in favor of them. 
Okay, and then when you look at the the numbers of the the, the average black students' uh, SAT scores and grades, you saw that they were not at the same mean as the average white student, average Asian student. So you saw that there was something else. It was not bias that was causing there to be fewer black students. And then on top of that, um, I would get little hints that within high schools, there would be some kid who would get rejected from UCLA, and then he would learn that another kid at his same high school, say, say a black kid or say a Latino kid, who, who, who the, the kid, the white kid knew that the black kid had much worse grades, much worse SAT scores, was not involved in the, the same student activities and would just be astounded. It's like, how did that person get in? But I did not. And then this rumor would go around the entire high school. So all the parents of that high school would know about this anecdote, and those anecdotes would not be reported in the L.A. Times. So the L.A. Times would try to insinuate that UCLA admissions people were biased against black people. Then everyone at that particular high school would say, no, that, that can't be. You know, I, I know about these, these rumors, this gossip, and I can't believe the L.A. Times. Now, your, your point, so what if you did not live in the L.A. area or happened to live in Europe? you would not have access to that gossip. And so you would believe only what the journalists are saying. So I think that, that reinforces what you said, but it's not just the alternative news outlets. There's also just the, the facts you learn on the ground, just from the, from the gossip. You kind of switched gears to something I wanted to talk with you about anyways, because uh, if you look at your career path, you got your PhD at Stanford, yeah. um, and then you, you taught at UCLA, at, uh, I think starting at the political science department, and then I think you had a joint professorship also at the economics department, yeah. and uh, before you switched to George Mason, Mason University in in Virginia, I think what you experienced there, based on 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 on, on reading um, reading up about you and your academic work, and also uh, a little bit about, about you, you the different stations academically in your life. It's more than rumor that in academic departments, conservative viewpoints are a minority from based on, on what I've read so far. Oh, yeah. Oh, definitely. Yeah. And, you know, I always wonder when people say, oh, I've never, I don't even know the viewpoints of my colleagues. Like, really? <laughs> I can't. I, I thought everyone knows. You know, when I said UCLA uh, political science department, I mean, we could go through every professor and say, oh, yeah, that, you know, that person I'm sure voted for. Obama, if not for the green candidate, uh, there's maybe a few who are kind of on the fence and you'd say, OK, that person, I'm not sure, probably some years votes for a Republican, some Democrat. But but you knew. And, and I, you know, uh, I did like a, uh, wouldn't call it a survey, kind of an informal survey. Let's call it that. And I found that about 7% of my colleagues in the political science department would typically vote for the Republican candidate. 93% would vote for the Democratic candidate, or at least if you're asked, you know, if you're restricted, you had to vote for one of the two, who would you vote for? It'd be something like that, 93 to 7. And we all know that. I can't, I can't see how anyone could not. Um, and now everyone goes through, I think sometimes it's a pretense, but sometimes they'll say, no, 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 but we're all scholars first. You know, if you have good work, you know, we all you know, we, we will, uh, uh, we won't judge you by your political views. And I think that's probably true with the majority 
of even the liberals in the political science department, but that's not true with all. I think any sort of um, vote decision on like um, uh, tenure or promotion or just something, a, a raise for me, there would be a vote. There would be something like four or five people, three to seven, let's say that, who I know just voted against me just because they didn't like my political views. Now, if you ask them, they would be a, a little more complex in how they would explain their vote. They would they would not say that they disagree with me because I'm conservative. They would say something like, oh, he's a racist. And now you would ask them, what does racist mean? And it basically means being a conservative. <laughs> you know, if you're for lower taxes, oh, that's racism because – and they would say – so in their new convoluted definition of racism, I would be called a racist, and I don't even think they realize how they're contorting the, the, the definition of, of racist. But then in their view, they'd say, oh, yeah, I'm not voting against him because of his political views per se, but I'm voting against because he's a racist, and they would feel justified in that. So that's what's going on. The conservatives are going to have – not everyone, you know, even a lot of the liberals will, will be objective scholars, but but not everyone. You will get some votes against you just because of your political views. But this this is it. This seems to me that this is increasingly happening. That 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 at some point, even if you voted against somebody because of their political leanings, at least you tried to kind of justify it on, on potentially reasonable grounds. But yeah. what we've seen over the last couple of months, there was one article supposed, it, it did get published and then they had to pull it. I think it was in, in I forgot the journal's name, but it was an article about uh, raising the issue, kind of whether or not potentially, for example, colonialism also had positive effects. As I said, I'm, I'm not an uh, development yeah. economist, so I, I can't read it, but even raising the topic kind of immediately led to, well, how can you publish this? So there was, I think, at Brown University, there was a, a, a paper published about um, the question of, of the rapid onset of, of gender dysphoria, because with kind of these things becoming, you know, more part of the mainstream, kind of the, the there is also, of course, this, this has consequences. And even though it was scientifically soundly conducted, it kind of the argument was, well, this can hurt somebody's feelings, therefore we shouldn't or we must not publish it. And I think this is... Yeah, this is not much different in a certain extent from from I mean, this is a little bit a crude comparison, but when a religious community would say, well, you cannot publish this book because it insults God, right? People would shake their head and say, well, that's that's ridiculous. But yeah. we, we kind of move in a similar direction where people openly say, oh, scientifically, there's nothing to object to it. But what could be the emotional consequences, which is the same argument to a certain extent. Yeah. Uh, you know, this is actually, I remember even in, um, uh, it's like 94, 95, uh, I had two years, I had a postdoc slash visiting position at MIT and Harvard. And I remember talking to one of the professors who this professor is pretty much a moderate, I think really didn't even care about politics, but this, this professor had a grad student who did some sort of uh, research on a, a gun issue. I can't even remember the, the topic, but uh, this grad student did the research, found out that the results happened in the way that the gun people would, that would please the gun people. So, so, so someone like Ann Coulter or John Lott would have seen these results said, oh yeah, I told you so. And this grad student 
I believe it was a he, told his professor, said, yeah, I can't publish this. This would be immoral to uh, this would in his, in his, uh, explain how this would cause people, the public, to move their views in the direction of John Lott and, and Ann Coulter, in the direction of being more pro-gun. So I'm, I must bury it. The moral thing for me to do is to bury it. Um, so there is uh, quite a bit of that. Um, and uh, that was going on even in the mid-90s. Um, yeah, I'm pretty sure even before. I mean, there, there there are some some movements against it. I mean, Jonathan Haidt is trying to do a lot about uh, viewpoint diversity yeah. and these issues. But even there, you see how fast the backlash can come. It was a couple of weeks, I think, it was three or four weeks ago. There was an article in the Washington Post with with the argument. I think that, I think it was even in the title with the argument that calling for a reasonable debate is exactly what the, what the southern states did before the civil war and all of a sudden it was it was Ben Shapiro and Jonathan Haidt and 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 uh, Dave Rubin kind of they were basically all of a sudden the, the new segregationists and and the the the, the new confederates so even except somebody like Jonathan Haidt who I, I still don't see necessarily as a, as a conservative and that once you kind of stray from 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 the, the the agreed upon or the even in academics the party line like it's it's a very small step to them being called you know a confederate or as you said in your case or a racist or kind of it's it's there is not much not much gray area left it seems yeah um stephen pinker i, I think i'm almost certain stephen pinker has come up with a great concept called the north pole uh no the, no the left pole and so just as if you're standing at the north pole any direction you step will be to the south and he says there's something among progressives especially in academia called the, he calls the left pole there's a certain number of positions that are consistent with the left and if you deviate on any of those positions any of those topics that make up the progressive views you are banished you have moved to the right away from the left pole and therefore you're banished. So there's people like Steven Pinker, I think Jonathan Haidt, who are uh, a colleague of mine uh, uh, at UCLA, Rick Sander. So we talked about uh, you know lots of the admissions issues and we were both on the same side uh, of admissions that there's some harmfulness in this affirmative action. And so on the topics we would talk about, it was usually admissions, we would always agree and I got to sort of think, well, yeah, yeah, you're a conservative. It just kind of intuitively I felt that way. And then eventually I would ask him about, I remember once about, we were talking about John Yu, the um, law scholar at Berkeley. Mm -hmm. So you must agree with me on <laughs> No, uh, Rick Sander did not at all. Rick Sander is largely a Democrat. He, is, he is, agrees more with Barack Obama than he does with me. Uh, Yet these people, people like him, Rick Sander, uh, Stephen Pinker, Jonathan Haidt, I think are just getting tired of the orthodoxy that you must agree with the left on everything. There's no room for dissent on any little, you know, minor issue. And uh, I'm starting to see a backlash. Some of these people who conservatives have embraced, the, the people who are embraced really aren't conservatives. And then that's uh, often uh, a well-kept secret, but people don't realize that. Do you think that has been, a, you said, I think it started already in the 90s, but I mean, that's a that's a broader trend. I'm, I'm just curious if I have an opinion on this, that kind of the, 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 the 
the fusion almost of morals and politics to a certain extent, right? I mean, it, it, I think it was never fully separated, but the, the ideal, especially in the United States, you would say there are problems. Can the government solve these problems based on the rights it has been granted or the, 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 the tools it has based on the Constitution, right? Kind of almost pragmatic, technocratic approach. But now it's much more kind of that government is not just supposed to find solutions for problems, but they're supposed to address kind of the moral dimension. It's, it's like that, that, that they're an almost therapeutic approach of government that kind of it recognizes kind of what Bill Clinton said in the 90s, right? That it can feel your pain. So, so it's 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 so so these issues. Politics is no longer an issue of where are we, where do we want to go. It's it's also where are we and how do we want to feel. Or, or do you think that might be an exaggeration? No, I think that's always been. I mean, I think a, a lot of you know political stances are, are are built from moral issues rather than pragmatic issues. I mean, I think if you asked uh, Nicolas Maduro, president of Venezuela, so. Yeah, one thing that's always um, puzzled me is that, uh, okay, yeah, Nicolas Maduro is a socialist. He wanted to implement all these socialist policies, especially the price controls. Um, at some point, he had to realize that it, it doesn't work. That, you know, we are in just awful shape in Venezuela. And you'd think like, oh, I'll make a change. I'll, I'll admit you know that this does not have very good pragmatic effects. This is making even the, the poor people poorer in in, in Venezuela. Uh, I think if you asked him, he would just say, you know, you know, why not lift the price controls, for instance? I think Nicolas Maduro would be like, I think a, a typical college professor in the United States at one of the at a sociology or ethnic studies departments that they would respond no it would just be immoral to do this uh, you know I don't care about the pragmatic effects I'm going to do it's immoral not to have price controls and therefore I can't lift them and, and so no matter what the results are I am going to stick to my position and um, I think that's becoming uh, more and more. Um, the, the one side effect of that is is that if your positions are built on morals, uh, on these policy stances, you, you often don't have to think very much. You don't have to think about the the trade off. You, you know, think about things like you know this this policy would lead to worse economic outcomes, or this policy, if I stood by it, would, would mean we'd all have to lie about aspects. We'd have to violate the Constitution. You don't have to even think about these trade-offs if your policy views are built from these moral. Now, now I admit some of my policy views, I think, are, are based upon moral precepts, uh, but a lot are not. Um, but when your policy stances are based on these moral precepts, you don't have to think as much about this. You don't have to think about the trade-offs. You don't have to think about gathering data to see which of this policy stance really is good pragmatically. And um, this happened to um, a colleague of mine at, at UCLA, a liberal person. He said, you know, the problem is you teach these classes and there's some people who believe that if we just have the right feelings, if we had tout the, the progressive ideal point, you don't have to think. So, and it's becoming more and more frustrating to teach students who, who, who think that way. And so I forgot your question, I think, but, but I think that's becoming more and more, especially among college students. We're, we're seeing that, that you base your policy views 
strictly upon what you believe or on your moral stances and less and less on what's pragmatically true, what is honest, what is consistent with the Constitution, what is consistent with the, with the rule of law. But as a kind of as a concluding topic of our conversation, because the many things I think come together. Um, I, I talked to, with Gary Saul Morrison about about the state of the humanities, and with uh, with Patrick Denine kind of about the state of liberal arts. But I think this this all falls also nicely into into your work, as you said. It's it it almost seems as as some of the the key conditions, if you want, of of, of the, the the approach to science, kind of the, the search for for facts, or if you want, kind of kind of almost natural law-like phenomena, also in 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 the social sphere, is increasingly getting replaced with with this this, this idea of it's it's a little bit of a, of a popular term, but kind of this idea of social justice. And I think in in the Harvard Crimson a couple of years ago, there even was a an article by a student kind of claiming that that. What it, that that academic freedom is less important than uh, than social justice. So pretty pretty much yeah. openly calling for suppress research that would go against what what whoever then is is in charge interprets as social justice. And that seems like a very dangerous road to go down. Oh yeah, in fact uh, that's part of the reason I I left UCLA. There was a an incident that hit home very personally to me. It involved a scholar named uh, James Instrom. He was in the epidemiology department at UCLA. Um, a lot of what the epidemiology department had done with these air quality studies. And um, eventually, um, now he had been kind of a thorn in the side. To everyone in this department was very much on the progressive side. And but usually I think in the past been just good scholars like, you know, yeah, we can do these studies. Now, uh, James Enstrom had done a few studies where he found something that did not give the correct results in terms of your if you have progressive views. And for instance, here is one. Uh, he looked at diesel particulates and found that in his study that the diesel particulates were not as harmful as everyone was saying. So in fact, he got an answer that that maybe these heavy diesel particulates are not causing cancer at all. That, you know, when the other studies had found that it works, the reason is because of this contamination effect that was correlated to these other particles in the air that were causing the cancer. And he did this study, very sound research. Um, this guy has a physics PhD from Stanford, a very smart guy, um, but got these results and it went against the progressive orthodoxy. It, it, it had implications for policy that would go against what the progressives wanted. And so lo and behold, one day this department had a quasi-secret meeting. Um, it was led by this guy named uh, John Freunds, I think, who happened to be a, a leftist activist in the 1960s. So some people may have heard of the Chicago Seven at the 68 convention. This Freunds was the bomb maker for their, he was the chemist for, for the Chicago Seven. This, this guy was, at least in his past life, was an activist. He'd become a scientist at UCLA. He led the um, uh, movement to have this quasi-secret meeting. And at this meeting, they voted 
to basically fire James Enstrom from UCLA. Now, they would say, oh, we didn't fire him. We just refused to uh, renew his contract. Well, that's for all intents and purposes, the same as firing. Um, Enstrom eventually uh, sued UCLA and won. He, he got his job back. Um, but the problem was is that he, James Enstrom, he had gotten perfectly sound scientific study got some results that just the progressives didn't like. And I think that a lot of the progressives would have said the moral thing to do is for you to bury those results, you not to tell the public at large. We need to have this consensus that at least look like all the scientists believe this, and you're going against that. And uh, when you do that, uh, we need to we, we jeopardize your job. Around that time, I had been uh, uh, scheduled to go up for I thought was an automatic promotion to um, they call it a step increase at UCLA, which would have meant a, a raise in my salary. And I thought this was automatic. And in the past years, it had always been automatic. All of a sudden, I was denied that the this faculty committee voted me down, and I thought. I, something's wrong here. Something's fishy is going on. I'm feeling the faculty committee voted me down because of my political views, or especially because I'd written left turn and found, got some results that angered the progressives. And I thought this, along with what just happened to James Enstrom, I no longer have these protections of, of people at least trying to claim to be objective scholars, that that is going out the window. My wife and I had a, a, a series of long, serious talks, and we realized that now all of a sudden my salary is affected by these left-wing orthodoxy. And we figured out that, yeah, they're not going to fire me. I've got tenure. Uh, but what they can do is prevent me from ever getting a raise. And what that could mean, we, you know, we looked at, you know, if you don't get a raise, that means your, your, yeah, your nominal salary, you know, before inflation adjustment, your nominal salary will stay constant, but your inflation adjusted salary is going to decrease. And we realized I got about 30 years before retirement. Within 30 years, my salary can go down by something like 50%. So we got to start thinking about, can we afford sending our kids to to a fancy college if they get in? If all of a sudden my salary is half what it used to be, and we decided around that time, that's when George Mason uh, called me up, and when um, uh, we eventually moved. But a big part of it was because of this incident that that happened with with James Enstrom. I mean, this brings me to, to truly because I, I I know I can't keep you forever to my last question. What is I mean. If, if everything we've talked about, kind of, if if one wraps it up, whether it's 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 the the bias in the media, the the, the increased bias, not just in the social sciences, but also in the hard sciences, it doesn't even matter now whether it's left wing or right wing bias. But do you think it really runs the risk that at some point you end up with a country where you say, well, there are these universities, these newspapers, uh, you know, these TV channels, they are kind of the right ones, the right side of the, of the spectrum, and the other ones that are the left ones. If, if things that at least in the past were perceived, even if it never was 100%, to be common ground, right? Like science, as you say, epistemology. I mean, th these were, I guess, at, at a time, not necessarily things where people were expecting a lot of partisan bias. I mean, how can you keep a country together if all these 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 institutions are then divided up neatly, so to speak, or not so neatly between left and right? Because at some point, somebody's going to say, well, what's the point of, of you know having 50 stars in the flag if, if we kind of divide according to all these important yeah. issues anyways? Yeah. 
You know, there, there's always been pockets, I, I think, of, of centrism in, in the U.S. And in fact, you know, one thing, so even though I, was, um, you know, I pretty much call myself an economist now, 10 years ago, I would have said I'm mostly a political scientist. Political science definitely leans left, you know, something like 93 to 7 in the UCLA department. But within political science, there is a pocket of people who are, who are pretty centrist or at least know what centrism means. And, and this is the congressional scholars. And I always enjoyed that, going to the conferences, talking to the other congressional scholars. And they all kind of knew that centrism means thinking something like a Joe Manchin or Susan Collins. And they, it's part of their job of a congressional scholar to be able to put themselves in the shoes of Joe Manchin, Susan Collins. So everyone, even if they were far left or far right, they could all know how to do that. And we could all kind of have this common ground about where we're talking. Um, so that was one pocket in academia where, where that's true. Um, even in the media, I, th I think there are some news outlets that that are pretty centrist. I, I, Politico, for instance, I think is, is pretty centrist. I think uh, uh, Special Report on Fox News, maybe the other shows lean right, but Special Report, is pretty, it, maybe it leans right, but it, it's pretty close to this, uh, the center. It used to be that um, uh, Jim Lehrer News Hour. That on PBS, I think, was pretty close to the center. A lot of the CNN shows were close to the center. Um, I, I think you're right, though, that those are kind of going away. I, I think that, um, um, and in fact, th things like the New York Times, I think, 30 years ago would be kind of, even the left-leaning, kind of in the center. That's moved left. Um, um, so yeah, the, the news outlets in the center are kind of going away. The same is true in Congress. Now this happened um, in my book. So my book left turn. So I often talked, had to talk about what centrist means. And so the way I would do this is I would pick some people on the Republicans in Congress who tended to have left-leaning districts and who tended to vote on a 50 on these vote score ratings. And, and, and there, were, there were a number who did that. Arlen Specter was one, Tom Campbell, uh, Susan Collins, Joe Manchin. Um, I could name all these, these people. Um, now, when I wrote my book, uh, I'm a very slow writer. Uh, I'm not very good at writing. I think it takes me a long time. Uh, this book, including the, the research I did for the original article, it took something like eight years to, to do this. And I started doing it when I'm rewriting drafts of my book. I started noticing all these centrists I'm talking about in Congress. All the time I noticed, oh, this person's already left Congress or this person has died. There, there'd be like Joe Lieberman, he's out uh, uh, all the time. Uh, Arlen Specter, he's died. And I thought, and it really occurred to me like, oh, there's something wrong. The, the centrists in Congress are, are dying out and leaving. And um, so I think that's true. In, in general, uh, uh, that's true. Now, I think the good thing is at least for presidential elections, we still have some purple states. Um Virginia kind of used to be. It's moving more to the left. Ohio, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Minnesota. They all are pretty centrist. 
Now, I think that would be the huge shame if all of a sudden that happened with states, that all of a sudden those states, you know, polarized and it went to nothing in the middle. I think we're we're in for trouble when, when that does not happen. That is where you set up the, the possibility of a civil war, I think. When, when you 